Let's pray together. Father, the grace that we confess, we know that it is indeed greater than all of our sin. Our sins that we commit individually and even, Lord, things that we tolerate collectively. Father, we know that our sins rise up above our heads, but we know that your grace is greater. That's what we believe and that we are trusting you for that you can rescue us from this. And so, Father, I pray you'd help us to see that now as we open the word to 1 Corinthians 5. Lord, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And, Father, we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I bumped into a friend at work who also happens to be a pastor. I was walking through the parking lot and I had my headphones on, so I didn't hear him, but he, he took the time to chase me down and to get my attention. And I could tell that he had something really urgent that he wanted to discuss with me. And he said that the previous week at his church, he found out that the guy that they had hired to be their student minister um, had been exposed as living in sexual immorality. But this particular offense was uh, pretty egregious. Someone had showed the pastor this guy's Facebook page, one that he had started kind of in secret, and he had his picture on it. He was in the profile picture. He was in a lot of pictures that were there in the updates, but it had a different name on it. And somebody discovered this. And the pictures and everything else, the updates revealed that he was in a relationship and in fact engaged to a man. And my friend, the pastor, was dumbfounded by this. Surely there must be some kind of an explanation for this. It, just, it was just out of nowhere. So he confronted the guy and after initially denying it, he finally admitted it and owned up to it and confessed that he had decided to pursue this lifestyle about 18 months previous. He had been carrying on like this for a year and a half and somehow within the church had gone on undetected. And in fact, he had just preached in the church a few weeks before. All the while carrying on in this secret immorality that was now exposed and now that he's found out, he tells the pastor that he is, wants to continue to pursue this lifestyle and to remain a Christian. He is one of those who's come to the opinion that you can pursue those kinds of relationships and be faithful as a Christian. He's convinced the two paths are completely compatible, which means he's unrepentant, at least um, when I talk to him. And so as you can imagine, this church was reeling about this. And my, my friend, the pastor, is he's just beside himself. Nobody in the church can believe what, what has gone on here and what this guy has done. But his double life, though perhaps it was concealed from the church, it was actually out in the open before everybody else to see. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because I want you to think about this. What do you think a church's proper response should be to that kind of thing? Should it be business as usual in the church? Or should the church 
do something about it. I know that this church, in fact, did do something about it. They immediately met and removed the guy from his, his leadership position, and now they're pursuing him with church discipline. I don't know how that's come out yet. It's not clear how that's going to come out, how he's going to respond. But what should a church do? I think they did the right thing in moving in discipline. And in fact, I think every church does the right thing to respond with, to such situations in discipline. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is this issue of church discipline. What do we mean when we talk about church discipline? There's two different ways we can talk about church discipline. We can talk about formative discipline. We can talk about corrective discipline. Formative church discipline is everything that a church does to form Christian believers into the image of Christ. So the teaching ministry of the church, the discipleship programs in a church, all of these things would be a part of a church's formative discipline and that we're all familiar with and that most churches do. But what we're less familiar with and what a lot of churches don't do is this issue of corrective church discipline. Corrective church discipline are the measures that a church takes to correct a sinning member, to address members who have decided to depart from holiness in a public way and to stop following Christ, but still somehow to be connected to the church. That kind of corrective church discipline can end up in excommunication of the member. And very few churches these days tend to do this, at least in 21st century North America. Now, those words, excommunicate and church discipline, they, they sound kind of strange to modern ears. It, it sort of conjures up images of, you know, the, the Inquisition or something and people getting up in, their, in, in, in our business. And, and, and we don't like that. <laughs> we don't like to think about our uh, accountability for holiness and moral issues to a community of, of people. And the problem is that many Christians today think solely of salvation in individualistic terms. We know that we need to take responsibility for our own lives, but we sometimes don't feel our responsibility to care for the holiness in the lives of our brothers and sisters within the church. And so you have a lot of people who conceive of Christianity as this kind of a lone ranger thing, and they don't have a view of what the scripture teaches about what it means to live in community with God's people in a congregation and the responsibilities that God brings to a congregation. And so people think, well, you know, as long as my nose is clean, what difference does it make how my brother or sister is doing? And so when somebody goes astray from the truth within the church, we might be sad about that, but what we often don't see is our responsibility for that brother or sister who's gone astray. And even if we don't say the words with our mouth, the attitude that we often can have is, am I my brother's keeper? And when Cain asked that question in Genesis, the answer was yes. And if we ask that question about one another, the answer is yes. We are our brother's keeper. And so our rugged, freedom-loving American individualism sometimes can cancel out what the Bible clearly teaches about our accountability to one another within the church. You know, Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins, 
Go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Then, of course, Matthew 18 goes on to talk about a process that unfolds if the brother is unresponsive to confrontation. And it could end up in church discipline, in excommunication. Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Or Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So think about all this in the context of our church. What would it mean in our church if we believed all the right doctrines and thought all the right thoughts about God? But when one of us violates the holiness of God, no one cares. There's no confrontation of the sin. No attempt to restore to faithfulness. No attempt to rescue a brother from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What would that mean for us as a church? If we act with indifference toward those who sin openly and with impunity and without repentance, if we respond with indifference to that, then when people complain about the church and about how people on the outside, they say, I don't like to go to church because it's filled with hypocrites. When we fail to respond and we respond with indifference, they're right. That charge sticks. And it lands. What good is a math teacher that teaches math but refuses to correct her students' mistakes? What good is a doctor who excels at teaching how to eat healthy and to live healthy but who will not diagnose and remove a cancer? What good is a church that teaches all the right doctrine but won't lift a finger to correct sinners in their own midst? When the world views that kind of hypocrisy and they see it in a church, it discredits the gospel and it repulses them. When our own children grow up and they see that kind of indifference to gross immorality within a church and it just goes unaddressed. When our children see that kind of hypocrisy, it will have the same effect on them and it will have a worse effect on them because they will get a ringside seat for their whole life to a church being indifferent towards actual unrepentant sin in the congregation. And it becomes, that indifference becomes pressed upon their hearts in a way that will induce many of them to fly as far away from the church as they can when they get old enough to do it. So I want you to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because that is what Paul is addressing in this text. The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers in Corinth who believe that they have much to boast about. We saw that last week, didn't we? They think that they have many spiritual accomplishments, and yet they are divided from one another because they are enamored with worldly wisdom. They're boasting in worldly wisdom. And Paul's been confronting them about this in the first four chapters and about the divisions in the church that flow from that boasting. And now he's turning his attention to confront 
another enormous error in the church. And that error in the Corinthian church is the refusal to practice corrective church discipline. And so Paul's confronting a very specific sin happening in a specific person's life within the church that they are failing to address as a congregation. And he chastises them for their indifference and he instructs them in a better way. And so we're going to divide this chapter into three parts and you'll see three things here. Paul's going to give them the, show them the command to discipline in verses 1 through 5. He's going to show them the motive of discipline in verses 6 through 8. And he's going to show them the proper candidate for discipline in verses 9 to 13. So it's the command to discipline, the motive of discipline, and the proper candidate for discipline. So everybody look at the command to discipline in verses 1 through 5. Look at verse 1. Paul says this, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now that phrase translated as actually reported means that the word is out about this sin within the congregation. And it's even reached the ears of Paul, who is not there in Corinth with them. He's writing them this letter from a distance. And just as someone reported to Paul about their divisions, chapter 1 and verse 11, so also they have told him about this case of this particular egregious sin. There is a man in the congregation, so it's a church member, his name's on the rolls, as it were. There's a man there in the church who is committing sexual immorality. But it's not just your regular run-of-the-mill sexual immorality. It is the kind that scandalizes even what the text says, scandalizes the pagans. Which means the Gentiles, those who are without God and without God's law, governing their lives. So think about this. The, the pagans, the Gentiles, who are outside of the church, they are not surprised or flummoxed by sexual immorality in the culture. Because that is the way they conduct their own lives. And the, the people to whom Paul was writing were living in the midst of a culture that was very sexually immoral. And so the larger culture was not surprised by sexual immorality. In Corinth, it was normal among the pagans for men to go visit prostitutes. It was normal for men to, some men to exploit younger boys. You think our culture is sexually deviant. There is nothing new under the sun. And Paul was addressing a culture that was sexually deviant. They were no strangers to sexual immorality. But there were some things that were even beyond them, and incest was one of those things. And so Paul says that this sexual immorality that's now occurring in the Corinthian church is of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Now, this reference to the father's wife would not be the man's own mother, but a reference to a stepmother, which, according to Mosaic law, was considered incest. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It's your father's nakedness. Or Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 11, if there's a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. Or Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 20. Cursed is he who lies with his father's wife. And in all those texts, it's talking about somebody who's in a kind of stepmother relation. 
the Corinthian believers have the benefit of God's law to tell them what is right. To tell them that this kind of relationship is ruled out according to God's revelation. Pagans don't have that. How shameful is it that the pagans without the law, in this case, know better than the Corinthian church with the law? Even the pagans see how evil this incest is. But somehow the Corinthians aren't seeing it. And so Paul rebukes them. Look at verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Did you catch that word arrogant? Do you recognize that that's the same term that Paul used in the previous chapter? In chapter 4, in verses 6 and 18 through 19, where Paul said, remember he said, don't go beyond what's written that, that none of you may become puffed up. That's the word for arrogant. Don't become puffed up in favor of one against the other. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. Verse 19, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. You remember how Paul rebuked them in the, in the text last week about their arrogance? They were puffed up one against the other because they loved worldly wisdom. They really admired and were committed to their favorite teachers and they were divided from one another on this, but it was all about worldly wisdom, all about their devotion to different teachers. And Paul's looking at them now in chapter 5 and verse 2, and he's saying, you've got time to be kings, to be impressed with worldly wisdom, and to congratulate yourselves that you're identified with certain teachers, but you don't have time to make sure that the congregation is holy. That's arrogant. If you spent a little less time impressed with yourselves, perhaps you'd have the humility to see that your congregation isn't doing so well. You have a guy committing incest right under your nose while you're bragging about, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, and all this. You're boasting about that, and these people's lives in the congregation are falling apart, and you're doing nothing. Does it really benefit us as a church to have all of our theological ducks in a row to have all of our favorite teachers preaching the Bible, to fill ourselves up with great teaching from our favorite Christian celebrities, all the while being unwilling to help a family falling apart because of gross immorality. It's arrogant to think that we are anything while being indifferent to the ways that sin ravages our own congregation. That's what Paul's saying right here. Don't let this be lost on you. Paul is addressing gross sin at the church in Corinth. Yet Paul, never in this passage does he rebuke the incestuous man. Who does he rebuke? The church. It is a violation. He rebukes the church for failing to deal with the incestuous man. It's a reflection on the church as a whole when the church is indifferent to this kind of sin. Do you see that? He never rebukes the man. He rebukes the church for failing to deal with the man. And he says, you, plural, y'all, are arrogant for this. And so Paul says that the sign of humility for the congregation is to think about such sin as God thinks about it. 
It's a violation of holiness, and therefore it's an occasion for mourning. And in this case, it's an occasion to remove the sinning member from the church. In other words, true humility in this case, this kind of seems ironic, but true humility would have moved the congregation to excommunicate this unrepentant, incestuous man. And by the way, it looks like it's only the man who was a member of the church because it doesn't recommend this for the woman involved. So presumably she was somebody not in the church. So you've got this guy having a relationship with a stepmother that's not in the church. And so look what Paul says in verse 3. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. The ESV, if you're reading the ESV, it says that, that Paul is absent in the body but present in spirit. Spirit, lowercase s. Um, I suspect, however, that Paul might actually mean, um, probably a better way to render this would be Paul saying um, that he's absent in body but present through the spirit. Capital S. Present through the Holy Spirit. If so, if that's correct, then what Paul means is that even though he is physically absent, the same Holy Spirit that empowers him as an apostle is powerfully present among the Corinthians as they gather together as a church. And that same Holy Spirit is present with them at, when they gather through Paul's inspired words as they are read to them from this letter. And in fact, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 10 and 11, it says this. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Paul talks about his, power, his, his letters being weighty and powerful when he's absent. I think that's the case because the Spirit of God is speaking through him powerfully as his letters are read to the people. His letters are weighty because they're attended by the power of the Holy Spirit, even when he's absent. And so he writes in verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, he's already said this person should be removed from the congregation. And as an apostle, Paul has already decided this case. That's what he means when he says, I've already judged this. By the way, we should mention here that Paul as an apostle has an authority to sort of judge this case, that church discipline has to happen in this case. That's a special prerogative of an apostle. It's not the prerogative of a pastor, a single pastor, to exercise church discipline. Paul tells who? The pastor to exercise discipline? No, he tells the congregation. Church discipline is an action that a congregation agrees to and does together when it comes to the final step of exhortation and then if there's no repentance, excommunication. So Paul says, I've already decided this should happen. What you do as a congregation should reflect what me, filled with the Holy Spirit, is saying you should, you should do, which is remove the man. He's saying he must be excommunicated. That means he's no longer to be reckoned a member of God's people. He's no longer welcome to the Lord's table. He's cut off from God's people and he's turned out. 
here, Paul says, into the realm where Satan has dominion. Why? Well, he, Paul says it, for the destruction of his flesh. Now, that is a curious phrase that has puzzled a lot of people. Some people think that this means that the destruction of his flesh is so that his physical body can be destroyed in death. But I don't think that's probably the best interpretation here. Paul often uses that term flesh to refer to the sinful nature in other texts of, in his letters. And I suspect that's what it means here. And on this reading, the goal of the excommunication would be redemptive. The hope is that the sinning brother would be so miserable when he's handed over to the realm of Satan and out of fellowship with the church, the hope is that he would be so miserable that his sinful nature might be mortified so that his spirit might come back around. And so the hope, therefore, is repentance and restoration. That's the point of the excommunication. But as long as he is obstinate in his sin, he must remain out of the church. Some years ago, uh, here in Louisville, on the evening news, there was a report about a crime committed at the college where I teach. And there were a number of young women who were receiving these uh, terrifying, obscene phone calls. Over 500 calls were made over about an eight-month period. And the women who reported the calls to the, uh, the women reported the calls to the police, and the police opened an investigation. They were able to obtain phone records, and they identified where the, the calls were coming from. The police found the guy who made the calls. They arrested him. And then right there on the evening news, they showed the guy being arraigned in the courtroom. His name, his face were revealed for everybody to see. And it turns out that he had formerly been a student. And he knew some of these women that he was calling. And indeed, he went to church with some of them. Throughout the entire period of those calls, he was a member of that church. I met with the pastor during that whole ordeal, and the whole thing was such an awful, heartbreaking thing for the church. Here's a guy they all knew for years, and he was leading this double life, coming to church every Sunday, worshiping as usual, giving no hint that he was, for this period of months, terrorizing these, these women of the congregation. And now the entire disgrace was publicly out there, plastered on the evening news. What do you think the church did? Do you think it mattered to that church's testimony or to the community whether they responded to that subversive evil in their midst? Do you think it mattered to the young women whether or not the church responded? What would have happened if they had just simply said, you know, who are we to judge? Jesus ate with tax gatherers and sinners. Surely we can just let this slide. God is love, right? You say, well, that's a crazy way to respond. I want to tell you that there are churches all over our land that respond that way daily to open and egregious sins in their congregations. They do nothing. Do you think that that kind of a response would have honored Christ's name and his testimony in this community, or do you think it would have harmed it? Of course that church's testimony was riding on how they responded to that. And they did respond to it faithfully, I think. Because they cared more about God's reputation than anything else. We have to think about this when we think about the issue of discipline. 
Do you think the command to discipline is important? You better believe it's important for us. You can hardly have integrity at all within a church without discipline. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves. God help us that we don't ever have to do this. Since our merge, I don't think we have. We did before. God help us that it doesn't come to this. But if it comes to it, are we ready and willing to do this together, to agree with God, to confront someone in their sin if they won't repent, and if it comes to it, to do that last thing that is so difficult to do? I'm telling you that that kind of integrity speaks to the community, it speaks to our witness, and it speaks to the holiness of God. Paul gives this command to discipline in, the, in verses 1 through 5. Are we willing to do it if it comes to it? Verses 6 through 8, he talks about the motive of discipline. Look here quickly. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Some translations render this leaven as yeast, but I think that's probably maybe a little bit misleading. Paul is, is drawing on a familiar custom from the Mosaic law in the, in the Old Testament. The Israelites would make dough week in and week out. They would allow it to ferment. They would keep back a portion of the fermented dough and add it to the new dough for the next week's bread. And, it would, and that fermentation would spread from the old dough into the new dough. And it would give lightness to the bread, like sourdough or something. And the fermentation would spread through each new lump. That's what the leaven did to the lumps of dough. And that process would be repeated throughout the year. New lumps of dough being mixed with the old fermented dough. But once a year, what did the Israelites do? They had Passover. And they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread in connection with, with Passover. And they got rid of that old fermented dough once a year. And even though the Old Testament doesn't expressly or explicitly say this, it may be that that Feast of Unleavened Bread was given um, not merely as a religious celebration, but also as a health provision for the people. Because in the fermentation process, which happened week after week throughout the year, there, it increased the dangers of infection among the people. And so the Israelites were commanded once a year to purge their homes during the feast of leaven. And they would bake only unleavened bread from which uh, dough that they would then start up the process again after the feast. And one commentator says it this way, thus in the New Testament, leaven became a symbol of the process by which an evil spreads insidiously in a community until the whole has been infected by it. Anyone familiar with the Old Testament would have known of this custom of, of, of the leavening, of this impurity spreading throughout the whole. And so Paul says in verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so do you see how Paul is drawing on the Passover meal imagery saying that old leaven has to be cleaned out to preserve purity. And he's comparing the lump of dough that the Israelites had with the community, the church. And he's saying that the purity of the whole depends on the purity of the part. 
If the old leaven is not cleaned out, it will infect the whole. Clean out the old leaven so that you can be what God has already reckoned you to be in Christ. He wants you to be what you are. He has declared you to be unleavened. You need to behave unleavened. Why? For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So just as the feast of unleavened bread comes right after the sacrifice of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, so also we are to keep our own community clean in light of the sacrifice that Christ made for us on the cross. Christ did not die to enable us to sin. He died to enable us to be holy. That's what he did. So verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so do you see what the motive of this kind of disciplinary action is within the church? The motive is the holiness of the congregation. Where discipline is faithfully practiced and the old leaven is taken out, holiness is preserved. Where that discipline is absent, holiness is lost. That's what he's saying here. What happens within a church when a church lets evil go unchecked by neglecting formative and corrective discipline of its members. What happens is the church's holiness gets compromised. Sin is given the opportunity to spread among other members. So here's the thing. One sin emboldens another. Just as it does that in your own life, it does that in the corporate life of the church. If the membership begins to see gross sin tolerated in other people's lives, they will think it will be tolerated in their own lives. So holiness is compromised where there's no corrective discipline. Witness is compromised where there is no corrective discipline. As we, as we mentioned earlier, when people charge us with hypocrisy of saying that we're one thing, but then doing another, they'll be right. Our witness is compromised by this. Our membership is compromised by this. Hey, we're a Baptist church. You know what that means? One of the distinctive things that it means is we believe in regenerate church membership. We try to make sure that we only accept members who have experienced the new birth. Well, guess what happens? If you only accept people who've experienced a new birth, but then some of those people later on begin renouncing Christ through their lives, you're going to end up with a congregation that's composed of believers and apostates. Believers and unbelievers. You're not going to be... You're not going to be just a believers-only church anymore. Your membership is compromised. A brother is compromised. When churches refuse corrective discipline, people who sin, who need to be confronted, and who might be corrected before it leads to excommunication, they're just left out to dry. God did not call us to that kind of compromise as a church. That's what Paul's saying here. That's why discipline is one of the marks of the church. If we don't have discipline, we're compromised. We become, over time, compromised at every level. If we love the holiness of God, we will embrace discipline 
this kind of corrective discipline when it's necessary. So Paul gives the command to discipline. He gives the motive of discipline, which is the holiness. And then finally, he gives the proper candidate for discipline. Look at verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, this tells us that clearly Paul had had a previous correspondence with the Corinthians. There was another letter that he wrote before 1 Corinthians, which means our 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. <laughs> okay, So there was another letter that he wrote to them. We don't know what that letter said. And in, in toto, but we do know what he said in part because he says in this verse what he told them. He says, I told you in my letter, don't associate with sexually immoral people. And Paul um, only uses that term to associate with one other time uh, outside of 1 Corinthians 5, and it's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14. Paul says this when he wrote to the Thessalonians. He says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. In other words, he's commanding church discipline as well in, in 2 Thessalonians. He says if somebody's disobedient to central apostolic truth, you've got to not associate with them. Excommunication. And, but then Paul says, and yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. In other words, 2 Thessalonians confirms what Paul says here. The whole point of corrective discipline is admonishment towards a brother that he might be restored. That's the hope, not that he would stay out. Paul thought that that principle of dissociation was clear when he wrote it to them in the first letter. So he clarified, but it wasn't clear to them. And so he clarifies what he originally meant in the first letter by saying what he says in verse 10. Look at verse 10. I did not at all mean the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. If you thought I was saying don't associate with any sinners or any sexually immoral person, you're missing the point. Paul did not mean to forbid all contact between Christians and sinners. That's not what he meant. Nor is he forbidding friendship with sinners. On the contrary, both Paul and Jesus himself want believers to be salt and light. But you can't be the salt of the earth and the light of the world if you're not in the world. Paul is not saying that we're to be separatists from the world, living in our own little Christian enclaves without ever touching those outside of the church. That's not what he's saying here. That's not how Jesus did it. That's not how Paul did it. That's not how we're supposed to do it. So we're not separatists in that sense. What that means is, is Paul doesn't want people coming out of the world, Christians coming out of the world. You need to be friends with your colleagues at work who are living in immorality. You need to be, make friends with your neighbor who is living in a variety of immoral ways. You need to know them. You need to love them. You need to become a part of their lives for the sake of Christ. You need to bear witness to them. That won't happen unless you know them and associate with them. That is the normal Christian life on this side of glory, and Paul is not calling us away from that kind of engagement with unbelievers. If that's the case, then who exactly does he want the Corinthians to ostracize? Who does he want them to not associate with? It's not those outside of the church, but those within the church who are doing those things. Look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty 
of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Which sounds like they are barred from the common meal. Which would maybe include more, but certainly should include the Lord's Supper. If we are Christians who believe the Bible, it doesn't surprise us when lost sinners behave like lost sinners. That's the world that the Lord has sent us out into. It does, however, scandalize and offend us when someone commits those same deeds in the name of Jesus. As a professing Christian, that is a whole different thing to us. We have a responsibility to confront sin in each other in a way that we would not confront those who are outside the church. So verse 12, Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? I know all this sounds strange to to our kind of post-Christian anything-goes culture. But we as Christians do actually believe that we have a responsibility to make moral judgments and to do so in a way that supports and promotes the holiness of the church. We do not try to promote the holiness of those outside of the church who do not know God. That would be doing things backwards. The new birth precedes new life. It's not the other way around. Look at verse 13. God judges those outside. That's God's job to do that. You purge the evil person from among you. It's not our job as the church to justify the unjust or to judge them. That is the Lord's job. It is our job to make judgments among ourselves and to deal with one another in holiness and to deal with a member who sins with unrepentance. You know, I go to a a pastor's conference every fall that's sponsored by a church that is very like-minded with our own church. And almost the entire program of this pastor's conference is just watching how this church does church. And we, we watch everything. We go to an elders meeting. We, we watch the elders work through pastoral issues. We sit at a new members class that the church does. We sit through their Sunday services and evening service. We attend a, a members meeting. All the attendees do this. And on one, more than one occasion over the years, I've watched the pastors lead the congregation through church discipline with wayward members. One year, while I was there for the conference, they had one member who declared on Facebook that he was no longer going to be a believer anymore, but he was turning to atheism. It happened while we were there for the, con- the, the conference. And we watched them remove him from membership um, while we were there. So I've seen this church do this kind of thing more than once. It's always sad. It's always tragic. But what's really impressed me over the years is that that church is not trigger happy when it comes to discipline. They know the difference between when to exercise the rod and when not to. And I saw something one year in them that just was really beautiful. They had two different pastoral situations before them at this particular time. And one was a young man who was dating women and who was fornicating, basically, and they found out. And they had another, a young woman, who was pregnant out of wedlock. Both had committed the same sin, but they were treated very differently. The man they excommunicated from the church. The woman they forgave and gathered around her and prayed for her and vowed to care for her through her pregnancy and and for that child. Now, what was the difference here? The man was unrepentant. 
the woman came to the elders, confessed, sought help from the church, turned from her sin, and the church shunned the man but embraced the woman. What was the difference here? And this is the key thing. Because all of us are going to sin, right? All of us are going to sin. If we did church discipline every time somebody sinned, I'd have to leave, and so would you, okay? All of us are going to sin. The issue is, is do we sin with impunity and with unrepentance? When a, a member begins to sin in a way that's public and that is met with unrepentance, even after the church comes and exhorts, that's when there has to be discipline. But guess what? The normal give and take of church life is that we're going to sin and we're going to repent. And we're going to turn from it and the Lord's going to restore us. Okay? The thing that, that, we, that can't be tolerated and, and that can't be had in a church is a member who professes to be a Christian but who becomes unrepentant in their sin and who just obstinately charges forward in their sin and says, I'm going to have this sin and I'm going to have Jesus and you all can just live with it. That's when the church says, no. No, we don't. Listen, there is always a pathway back to fellowship and to brotherhood where there is repentance. But there is no pathway back when there is no, no repentance. Unrepentance will lead to discipline. And it should lead to excommunication. And it has to be that way if we love each other and if we love God's holiness in this congregation. So what does this mean for us? It means that we need the Lord's grace, don't we? Grace to live faithfully, grace to repent, and grace to accept truths like this, which are so countercultural and sometimes hard. We need the Lord's grace. And the good news is, is that we have the Lord's grace. Um, Paul says he wants us to be unleavened just as we are unleavened. God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. The gospel of the Lord Jesus means that we have received the Holy Spirit of God. He is in our midst, operating powerfully. I believe in such a way that will cause us agreement and grace, even if it comes to a difficult situation like this. And it will be a mark of the church and of God's presence among us when we do. Father, I pray that you would sow these truths in our heart in such a way that you give us integrity. I do pray that you would spare us from being um, just hypercritical of one another, of being fruit pickers. <laughs> um, but Lord, let us see this last resort thing as something that's real and grave and something that you call us to do when one of us goes astray and won't come back. Father, I pray you'd fill us with your spirit so that we love your holiness so much that we will care about your reputation more than we care about anything else and that we will care about faithfulness to this kind of a deed of the church when we're called to it. Father, I pray you'd spare us from ever having to do it, but help us not to shrink back if we do. Father, we love you. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus crucified and raised for sinners. It's in his name that we pray.
Amen.